All right, good evening, everyone. Am I on? Good. I guess I am on. So here I am. Um, as you already know, and Tammy just kind of alluded to it, the, the Old Testament has a lot of moving parts. Is that fair to say? It's got a lot of moving parts. And at times the parts can really get convoluted, and it's, uh, it's a challenge to kind of straighten things out and um, present them in a way that they, they make sense and that they flow. Uh, but as, uh, as diligent as we are doing that, sometimes we, uh, we aren't quite successful, but uh, still we'll do the best we can. So uh, tonight we continue with, uh, with kings, and specifically our topic for tonight is uh, the Davidic kings ruling over Judah. And uh, last week, uh, although I was not here because I was teaching New Testament last week, uh, I did have the opportunity to listen to Barry's <coughs> um, presentation, which, was, which I thoroughly enjoyed. <coughs> and uh, he probably, uh, I think he made reference to a map. It may have looked something similar to this, Barry. Did it look, was that the same map or was it something similar? All right, all right, very good. So, um, again, uh, what happened uh, after Solomon in the, you know, um, uh, we have Saul, we have David, we have Solomon, the three kings of the United Kingdom. And then the kingdom was divided, and they were divided to uh, the north was Israel, and to the south was Judah. So on, on this particular map, we see the red being Israel, generally speaking, and Judah in purple, uh, the, southern, uh, the southern kingdom. And first and second kings really recount the decline and fall of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, that's what uh, really is a kind of an overarching top theme. It's, this is what we're looking at when we read first and second kings: the decline and the fall of the Davidic monarchy. Now, in our Bibles, we have these two books of kings. In the Hebrew Bible, where which of course is the Old Testament, as originally compiled, Kings was one book. And it wasn't until later on that it became two books. It was divided, so we have First and Second Kings. But the author was the same for both, although we don't know who it was. We do not know who the author of these two books was. And together with the books of Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel, these two books tell the history of Israel's failure to keep the covenant that God made with them. So that's what we see in, in those particular books. We see the history of Israel's failure to keep its covenant with God. These two books, or the book of Kings, was written during the exile. Now, we are slowly working our way towards the exile. It's coming up in a few more weeks. But we've already made reference to it several times. You know, Barry did last week, and I did the week before that. Uh, so, and again, today, another reference to the exile. And this was, the, uh, this was like these, this book, these two books were likely written between 561 B.C. and 538 B.C. <clears throat> so, the events that are recorded here uh, occurred between 1050 B.C., and 586 B.C. So the books of Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings, cover a period of approximately 464 years. So that being the case, the writer, whoever he was, was not writing current events. Okay, he, we can read it as such, but he was not writing current events. That was not what he was doing. Um, and so if you look on your uh, New Testament timeline, uh, you see that the period of the kings runs between these dates, 1050 B.C. and uh, 586 B.C. So taking the year roughly 1050 B.C. where we start, what are some of the earliest events, based on the timeline, occurred at the beginning of this period? David was king. Who else was king in the early part, in the early going? Saul was king in the early going. So at the very beginning of Kings, first Kings, we're really looking about um, what uh, the history of Saul and David were to a large extent. Okay, so the oldest events in the book of Kings, David and Solomon's reigns, occurred approximately 420 years before the writer recorded them. Of course, as... Uh, um, it's important to note when it comes to the Bible as a whole, it is 
uh, believed by those of us who are Bible-believing Christians that uh, it was written by human authors under the superintending of the Holy Spirit. So while the authors had their reasons for writing a particular book, they were prompted to do so by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit superintended or guided what it was that they wrote. Okay. So, uh, so it is with the Old Testament and New Testament, and of course uh, the kings being part of that. And so the newest events, the most recent events in these books would be what? If you get to the end of 2 Kings, what are some of like the last events we're going to be reading about? Exile. Right, Judah being taken into exile. And these were recorded, written about approximately 25 to 48 years after they happened. Right? So because the writer is writing this, this book in exile. He's a Jew, and he's writing during the exile. And the exile meaning when Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 and spends 70 years in Babylonian exile, exile in Babylon. Okay? So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the, the exile. Okay? Right. <clears throat> Whenever you read a book in the Bible, you should probably ask yourself, who was the intended audience? And in this case, who do you think the intended audience of Kings was? Who was the writer writing to? The people of Israel at what point? During the exile. So he's writing to those who are in exile. That's his audience. Okay? It's important to know. Right? So now we kind of know who his audience was. Another question we want to ask ourselves is, why did he write them? Why did he write this book, or these two books now that we, we look at? Why do you think? Very good. It was part of it was to say, here's why, here's why you're here. Okay, just in case you didn't know, or if you knew and you forgot, this is why you're here. All right, so that's, uh, uh, that's one reason. Um, and there are uh, various you know, other reasons. We're going to look at three of them you know, specifically. Uh, so one purpose was to address some questions that may have troubled these people who were in captivity they likely may have asked themselves some of these questions. Has Yahweh fe you know, failed us? Yahweh was their covenant God. That's who re revealed himself to Moses in Sinai. So, you know, ha and so has Yahweh failed us? Why are we here? How could this have happened to us? Is it even possible that the God of the Babylonians is more powerful than our Yahweh? You know, those are probably legitimate questions that it's conceivable that people were asking themselves. Uh, and so the author, in part, was writing to try to answer some of those concerns that they may have had. Additionally, the author was writing to explain the role that they, the Jews themselves, the Israelites themselves, had, along with their leaders, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the role they played in bringing about their exile, uh, which was, again, failing to obey the covenant through idolatry. The Israelites were not innocent in what happened to them. They contributed significantly to what happened to them. Of course, that's really what you read a lot about in the book of Kings, which we'll get into in just a few minutes. And also, uh, to confirm Yahweh's power rather than calling it into question. So here again, the author is trying to provide additional information to the folks in exile uh, and to let them know that God acted justly in carrying out the warning that he had made known that if they didn't obey his commands, something terrible was going to happen to them, which was generally they were going to be taken from the land and, ta and taken somewhere else if they failed to obey his commandments. So these are some of the reasons why uh, the author wrote the book of Kings. Okay. Uh, in my research, I found some interesting thoughts by various commentators on their perspective on why these books were written. So I want to look at a few of these. 
uh, one commentator said uh, that the writer of Kings takes laws that are unique to Deuteronomy okay, and uses them as the spectacles through which he assesses the history of the nation. In reading Hebrews, I mean, in reading um, uh, Kings, it's, it's obvious to the, any of the, the, the Israelites, the Jews, who knew the, uh, the uh, five, um, uh, the Torah, the five, first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy being one of the main ones, they, reading Kings, they would have known that the writer knew a lot about Deuteronomy. He was privileged to what that book contained. Uh, and so the writer is saying that, the, that um, he uses Deuteronomy as kind of a lens through which he views the events of kings. And that's one uh, uh, writer's perspective, one commentator's perspective. Another one is, says, the writer of kings is not particularly concerned with the king's military or political successes, but rather with individual king's faithfulness to the command of God. Now, if you have actually sat down and read First and Second Kings, it's very easy to get lost or caught up in the political intrigue, the family dynamic intrigue, uh, and all the other things that go on that we see or written about, which some are not very pretty, uh, you know, in the books, the wars and all the other kind of things. But that's not the focus of the writer. He includes all those things to make his points, but his real focus, to some extent, is uh, trying to assess the faithfulness of these kings to God's commands. Yet another commentator said, the writer wrote the books to show how the kings failed miserably, absolutely failed miserably in fulfilling what this particular author called, or a company called, the royal mandate. The royal mandate. And this is a phrase that we see over and over again in Kings, and that is doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. And then this last one, uh, and as you can see, if you look at this uh, screen here, that uh, the, uh, I put a red star beside it because this is, I think, really the important one. The writer of Kings was concerned to demonstrate the historical reality of God's faithfulness to his promises to David. And this is critical in our understanding of redemptive history, the redemptive story, that God is always faithful. Uh, and why is this important? Uh, why is this important that the writer is going to show this? Again, it's because of the need to show the continuity in the story of redemption. So our objectives tonight are these. One, by the end of tonight, hopefully you will have a deeper understanding of the Old Testament kingship, the overall kingship idea. Also to know the basis of God's assessment for the kings. On what basis was, did God assess the kings? How was he judging them, so to speak? Also, hopefully uh, you will be able to know the results of God's assessment uh, and be able to explain uh, why that happened, uh, and also uh, to explain the role of First and Second Kings in the story of redemption, because everything ties into the overarching story of redemption. Yes, sir. Yeah, page two. So we have the kings on the one hand, and we have the prophets on the other hand. And we're going to see how those tie together during our time together tonight. So excellent. And yes, those who are in captivity would have been privy to the fact that there were the prophets as well as the kings. Okay. So very good. Thank you for uh, mentioning that. Uh, our big idea at the end of the day, you know, or at the end of the night tonight is this. In spite of most of Judah's kings doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the overarching story of the southern monarchy during the years of the divided kingdom is God's faithfulness to the promise he made to King David that his throne shall be established forever. Okay, that's the big idea. That's our takeaway for tonight.
So uh, three points to our agenda this evening is we're going to look first at the important elements of the Old Testament kingship. And then we will look at God's assessment of Judah's kings. And then we're going to look at the results of the assessment. And so the important elements of the Old Testament kingship are going to include things like Israel's request, their initial request for a king, the nature of that kingship, the character of the kingship, and God's expectations for those kings. And as far as the assessment of uh, uh, Judah's kings, we're going to look at what was the standard, what did God use to judge them, uh, and just kind of briefly review the assessment of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom that Barry covered last week, and then the assessment of the southern kings. And then for the results of the assessment, we're going to look at the prophets Isaiah and Micah. So that's where we're going tonight. Let me pause there to see if there are any questions. Yes, sir. I don't know if they would have all memorized. Uh, it would have been an expectation for, for some. But as we see, as, uh, if you look at the kings specifically, because we're going to look at this, that the kings didn't. You know, and so I wouldn't, I don't think it's fair to say that. There are some that, that would, especially if, like, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when we see, you know, that's later on, um, uh, during the exile, but they were upstanding young Jewish, the best of the best in Jerusalem. They probably did. But I wouldn't, I don't think it's probably fair to say that they all did. But, but how many, how many, how many, I really don't know. Okay, but good question. Okay, other questions? Yes, ma'am. It is. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between the events. Uh, so First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles uh, cover a lot of the same same period. The, the big difference is this: that the Book of Kings was written during the exile. The two books of Chronicles were written after the exile. They were written to the Jews who returned to Judah from exile. Yeah, so that's a significant difference as far as timing goes. But the events that they cover are fairly similar. Okay, great question. Others? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Important elements of uh, the Old Testament kingship. Israel's request for a king, and very often we think this happens in Samuel where uh, Samuel is confronted by the people saying, we want a king. But the fact of the matter is that the request for the king was something that God foretold in the book of Deuteronomy 463 years in advance of the request being made. And we see that here, Deuteronomy 17, 14. It says, when you enter the land, again, this is before they enter the promised land, this is God, but when you enter the land and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us. Okay. So that's their request. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. What are some of the ramifications of Israel requesting a king? Anybody know just from what you've read? What are some of the ramifications? We've asked for a king. What's some of the fallout of that? Rejection of God as king. Excellent. Taxes. Taxes. What? No, taxes. Taxes. All right, take your men for, your, for his armies. Okay. That's good. Okay. Uh, yep, take the best land. Sure. So the nature of the kingship. Okay. Who was Israel's first king? Eh. God, Yahweh. That was a trick question. Because <laughs> usually they'll say, oh yeah, Saul was the first king, but it's God. Daniel? If they hadn't have had kings, would the religious leaders have been the rulers then? Well, we're going to touch base on that. Just, uh, but the answer is no. But hang on, we're going to uh, make a reference to that in just a few minutes. All right. um, so, uh, you know, God, Yahweh, was Israel's first king. Okay, given that, what was the biggest difference between Yahweh and the type of kings that the Israelites wanted? What's the biggest difference there? Visible. He was invisible. Okay, visible, invisible. 
okay? A fighter, a warrior. The biggest difference is that the king they asked for wasn't God. That's the biggest difference. Okay, all the other things are, are true. But the big difference was they had Yahweh as their king. Now they're asking for a, a human king. So the biggest difference is the king they're asking for isn't God. Okay. Right. And so we see, um, no, no, not, not Yahweh, uh, 2 Samuel 12.12. Uh, 12. But when you saw, this is um, Samuel speaking, but when you saw that Naash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. All right? Okay. Now, before the kings came on to the scene, oh, what type of, I'm going to put this in quotes, who, who led the Israelites? Judges. Okay, and I put that in quotes for this reason, that not only is the kingship that Israel is asking for, not Yahweh, it's also not a judgeship. They're not asking for a continuation of the judges. And to answer your question, Daniel, God was ruling Israel, and it would have been God if they hadn't asked for a human king. God would have continued to be their king. All right? Now, what God did with the judges was this. Uh, First of all, the judges were not dynastic, meaning that the judges did not inherit the position of judge. Okay? Uh, they were, uh, judges were not rulers, but deliverers. What God did was he would ri- raise up these judges, and uh, Barry mentioned this last week, what was the cycle of events during the period of the judges? Do you remember? Yeah, so what you had was they would kind of abandon God, and then the the hostile enemies would come in and subdue them. They would cry out for a deliverer. God would raise up a judge. The judge would deliver them, and they'd start all over again. Uh, And Chris preached on this last year on the the book of Judges. So we had the cycle. It went over and over and over again. Uh, But the main purpose was for the judges was to preserve the nation, to deliver them when they were being uh, overwhelmed by an enemy. And then what was the model of kingship that the Israelites were asking for? What was the model? To be like the other nations. We want, we want kings just like everybody else has a king. Okay, that was the model that they had. And in that model, like the other nations, the kings were dynastic. They were inherited just like we see in the monarchy in England today and some other countries. Um, now, the important thing is, once they did this, and they had this dynastic kingship, they essentially eliminated Yahweh from the mix. God was no longer uh, doing anything divine, supposedly, to uh, run the country day to day, to be their leader. Okay, um, and basically this position, having their own human king, positioned the king, not Yahweh, as the deliverer of the people from that point forward. In 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, it says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, here's a crucial point that if you want to make any notes tonight, this may be one you want to make. That Israel's request for a king other than God was basically an expression of a unilateral withdrawal from the Sinaitic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with the people at Sinai. You're going to be, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. When they wanted their own king, it was basically a unilateral uh, withdrawal from the covenant. And the covenant was really mandating that Israel was going to be different than all the other peoples of the world. But then when the king negated a lot of that. Yes. Yes. 
No, they continued those for a while. Saul corrupted that a little bit. David tried to restore that a little bit. You see, so, so the people but, still that they were following God. To some extent, yes. Uh, but it began to wane. And, and it's, it was, uh, it, there's this phrase I really like to use. It's called incremental degradation. Okay? Incremental degradation. I'll tell you where I first heard that. It was from the owner or the founder of Mars Candies. Because he was concerned when they were talking about uh, changing their production model. He said, I don't want the production to change such that over time we get incremental degradation in the quality of our product. I thought that was a great phrase because it applies to a lot of different things. And it applies here with the Israelites, that there was this incremental degradation in their maintaining the covenant uh, uh, standards, basically. Good question. In Exodus 6, 7 through 8, uh, we read, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up from um, under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand, to give Abraham to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. In Exodus 19.5, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And just to rehash, just very uh, at a high level, uh, this is a, the Sinaitic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is a conditional covenant. It's conditional. It's an if-then covenant. God says, if you do this, then I will do that. Then there's the flip side. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. Okay? And that's what we see at play here in Kings, is how this is, is, is walked out. And then finally, as far as the nature of kingship goes, not only is it dynastic, but it's bureaucratic and tightly regulated, just like the kings uh, in, the, in the nations around them. And that brings us to the character of the kingship, okay? And Barry made a reference to this uh, last week about uh, how the character of the king, this new king, would affect the people. And somebody already referenced this uh, earlier on this evening um, about what this king is going to do that Yahweh didn't do. I think it was you who said it. It was about taking. Yeah. Okay, can you mention that again? Is it like... Right. Crops, crops, right. Crops, land, yep. You know, money. Okay, very good. And we read about this in 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 17. This is what I, I call the informed consent clause. This is the informed consent clause. Okay, so what Samuel's about to say is, okay, you want the king? Right, this is the deal. Uh, again, 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 17. What is the operative word do you see on the screen up there? Take. take. That's the operative word. So he says in these verses, he meaning the king is going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take the best of your fields, he's going to take a tenth of your grain, and he's going to take your donkeys and cattle and male and female servants, and he's going to take a tenth of your flocks. Okay. Yahweh in um, kind of, uh, if you want to counterpose these two, the operative word for Yahweh is give. God didn't take, God gave. God gave them the land. God gave them provision. God gave them security. And God would give them peace. So here, you know, God, okay, you don't want me? I'm a God that gives. But if you don't want me, you're going to have a human, you know, king, and he's going to be a king that takes. Okay, and these are the things that he's going to take from you. Now, God also said, okay, all right, you're going to have a king, but there are certain expectations that I have for these human kings. Okay. One is the king must be chosen by me. The king is chosen by God. Second, the king must be an Israelite, cannot be a foreigner. And there are certain things your king must not do. He must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. He must not take many wives. And this is what it says in the scripture. Or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of uh, silver and gold. 
Now, is there any king that comes to mind right off the bat that disobeyed this in a big way? Solomon. Solomon. Like every one of these. Solomon, like, he, like, did he not get the message? Okay, if he got it, he completely ignored it. And I'm sure he got the message, but he completely ignored it. So there, God's saying there are some things that the king must not do. And on the other hand, there are some things that this king is to do. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law. And this would be the Ten Commandments. Okay. And he is to take that with him wherever he goes. He's to have this with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life. And he is to learn to serve the Lord and follow him carefully with the words of the law and the decrees. And he is not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. And he is not to turn away from the law, either to the right or to the left. Now, from what you've read, how did the kings match up against what was expected of them by God? They didn't get the memo, okay? They failed miserably. We said, did all of them fail miserably? No, we'll talk about that. Yes? Sure. Well, it wasn't what God wanted, but God let them have it. But God said, okay, but here's the deal. You know, because God's still in charge, right? I mean, there's, let's face it, yeah. So there were only two that God actually ordained. And who were they? Saul and David. Okay. Uh, So the people didn't get together and say, well, we think it's Uh, so-and-so. And then once you get to David, then you get into the dynastic succession. It's the son in the sun, it's the sun. Uh, so that's where we end up from there. So again, uh, based on God's expectations for his kings, they failed miserably, okay, for the most part. Okay, <clears throat> so um, we're going to talk about some adjustments that were made to Israel's kingship, and there are two. I'm going to get to them in a minute, but let me just kind of finish setting the background here just a little bit for you. So again, I mentioned earlier that the writer of Hebrews is looking through the lens of the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so he relies a lot on what Deuteronomy says in order to posi- for him to position what these kings were like uh, based on what God expected of them. And so Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28 specifically, verses 1 and 2 If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. All the blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord. Uh, And he goes on to say a lot of other things. Specifically, you can jot these down and look them up later. uh, In the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, again, verses 1 and 2, verse 15, verse 36, and verse 63. Verse 63 is interesting because it says, Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. That's a pretty heavy word. That's a pretty heavy word. We don't generally like to see God in that light, but he is just, and that's what his justice called for. And he says, You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. And Samuel warns the same thing. 364 years later, and you can jot this down if you want to look it up a little bit later, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, he talks about what Israel must do in order to stay in the land. Okay. Uh, So when it comes to following God's commands, and we look at the Ten Commandments specifically, the first two are informative here when we talk about the judges and the people of Israel. Uh, Does anybody happen to know what the first commandment is? Okay, and you shall have no other gods before me. 
And the second, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Okay. Like these are the big two, you know, the top two, because everything else starts to flow from that. However, the model of kingship that the people asked for was like the world around them. And in so doing, it put the covenant relationship with God at risk. Having this king, human king over them, having human kings over them, put the covenant relationship at risk. Uh, in one of my textbooks uh, from seminary, um, The Faithful of Israel by uh, Professor William Dumbrell, he said, clearly the demand for kingship identifies Israel with the world and must be adjusted to become compatible with the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, and so to mitigate the risk of the covenant relationship being broken, God institutes two adjustments to kingship. Okay, he doesn't adjust the covenant. He adjusts kingship. Okay? And the one thing he does is he institutes the office of prophet. He institutes the office of prophet. The second thing he does is he establishes a divine framework for kingship. Okay? So this is God's way of saying, you may want kings like the nations, but that's only going to go so far. I'm putting some restrictions on this, and here's what they are. I'm going to institute the office of the prophet, and I'm going to establish a divine framework in which these kings have to operate. Okay. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to do our first table discussion, uh, and we're going to set up a couple of things before we do that. So the first, judgment, uh, the first adjustment is the instituting of the prophets. Okay? What do we know about the prophets? Anybody, anything. What do you know about the prophets? God chose them. God chose them. They what? Suffered. They suffered. They, did. they speak God's word. What else? They announced judgment. They announced judgment. Very good. Some were reluctant. Some were reluctant, like Jonah. Uh, and uh, uh, Elisha, as Barry mentioned last week, covered that very nicely, how they felt sorry for themselves <laughs> and really didn't want to do what God was asking them to do. Okay. Um, uh, they were um, covenant-centered messengers. Covenant-centered messengers. Um, they took the law that God gave at Sinai and they applied it to Israel's social life, its political life, its religious life, and the economic conditions of the day. They were, in essence, covenant mediators. The phrase that Barry used last week was that they were covenant watchdogs. That was a good phrase. They were covenant watchdogs, covenant mediators. Um, and um, when they appeared on the scene, it's like, this is, this is, something bad has happened. If, they, if a prophet shows up, it's because something bad has happened. Now, for those of you who are old enough to know, uh, years back, when, uh, 60 Minutes, when Mike Wallace, you know, when Mike Wallace showed it's like, you're like, the worst thing could happen to you on Monday morning is if somebody walks in your office and says, Mike Wallace is here. <laughs> If you don't know Mike Wallace, come see me afterwards, I'll tell you. Uh, but it's the same kind of deal, like, you know, someone goes to the king, by the way, there's a prophet here to see you. Okay, so that, that, can't, be, that can't be good news, okay? And the primary reason that the prophet showed up because the covenant was breached, what was the primary breach do you think was in play? Idolatry. That, that's the big one. Idolatry. Uh, that was the one that uh, is like the core sin that almost every prophet addressed. Almost every prophet addressed that. The prophets were somewhat of a check and balance on the independence of the kings. Okay. Because the independence of the kings, to some extent, would most likely put the covenant relationship at risk. Professor Dumbrell said, kingship must submit to 
prophecy. The contemplative office of king requires divine guidance for success. So God wasn't about to give the kings a free reign, free hand. You know, just do what you want. He was insistent that they still be subject to divinity in a way. And it was the prophets that he instituted to make sure they did that. Question? Uh, it was totally separate, primarily because um, the corruption kind of ran downhill, and uh, the, the the priests and you know the Levites they were corrupted too. They were just as corrupt as the kings were, and so where else where else do you go? God says, well, not, the kings aren't going to be helpful. The then the priests aren't going to be helpful because they're corrupted too. So he brings on he brings the prophets onto the scene. So there again are a check check and balance. Uh, now. Um, uh, Barry, did you show us, uh, something similar to this last week? Um, uh, kind of the prophets and the kings together? Yeah, mainly just for the, for the north. Okay, okay. So on the left-hand side, these are the, uh, uh, the prophets and kings for the north. Uh, and you see the prophets on the left and associated with the kings that they were uh, raised up to speak to. And over on the right-hand side are the, uh, the, the prophets and kings of Judah. The kings in the left-hand column and the prophets in the right-hand column. Uh, so you can see how many different prophets there were and how many different kings there were. Uh, and these uh, were in play for you know, uh, a number, uh, several hundred years in the, uh, in the north until uh, the Assyrians assimilated Israel in 722 B.C. and in the south uh, until um, Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. So, but the kings were subject to the divine guidance of the prophets. That's one of the reasons the prophets were there. And the struggles between the kings and the prophets characterize the history of Israel from this point on until their separate uh, demises in 722 and 586. The overarching message was idolatry without repentance brings disaster. Uh, and Interestingly, and this is something that's, that's kind of lost, and it didn't dawn on me while I was you know, doing the research for uh, our evening today, uh, it was that the related messages of impending judgment were in reality messages of salvation. Judgment's coming, but you have a chance to clean up your act. So it really was a matter of grace that the prophets, it was a message of grace the prophets were bringing. Uh, the threat of judgment was an implicit invitation to repent. Okay. Right. And then the second adjustment here, God establishes a divine framework for kingship. They must be divinely chosen, must be anointed by God's prophets, must be endowed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those three things are what God set up uh, as far as the framework for the, uh, for the, um, for the, uh, the kings. Uh, and these three elements only showed up in three people in the Bible. Only three. Saul, David, and who's the third? The answer is always Jesus when you get to the third, okay? <laughs> it's always Jesus. Okay. Number three is Jesus, okay? Uh, and um, so these three elements uh, don't show up again until Jesus comes on the scene. Okay, I know that was a lot to cover in uh, the first, like, 45 minutes. Um, but we're going to spend the, uh, most of the rest of our time tonight in discussion and talking about some things. So here's your first discussion for tonight. Of the following elements of Israel's kingship, which one do you believe is the most important to the story of redemption and why? Is it divinely chosen? Is it revere God and follow his laws and decrees? Or is it subject to the divine guidance of the prophets? Which one do you think? So spend some time talking about this. We'll have at least 10 minutes to talk about this, maybe a little bit more, but at least 10 minutes on this, maybe 15. Okay. 
Okay, let's stop there and see what you all came up with to see if anybody or any group uh, had any consensus uh, as to which one of these they feel was the most important. Uh, was it divinely chosen? Was it uh, revere God and follow his laws and decrees? Or subject to the divine guidance of the prophets, which is most important to the story of redemption? Table three says yes. Okay, good. Yes, table two says uh, number four, all of the above. Okay. Number four, the, uh, your reference to Jesus? Is that, yes, the, the final king, okay. 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 Good. Okay, all right. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? Number two? Why? Okay, so if you revere God uh, and follow his laws, everything else falls into place. Okay. Any other thoughts? They're all important. I think that's, that, that's obvious in the face. As to which is the most important, I mean, you can, you, you can parse you know, words in, if, if, you, you know, if you want to. Uh, there's no wrong answer here. Um, uh, I, if I were to pick one, if I were to force to pick one, somebody said, you've got to pick one, you know, which one would I pick? I think it would be number two. Uh, to revere God and follow his laws and decrees, because it's in the context of, the question was posed in the context of the story of redemptive history. And redemptive history is all about, you know, the salvation and God's plan continuing from beginning to end. And it's going to continue from beginning to end in accordance with his laws and decrees. Okay? That's the thing that kind of keeps things moving along. Faithfulness to God's word. Okay, basically what that is. Um, again, an argument can be made for others and even different ones that's, that, that are up there. Uh, but it's, just, it's a good exercise to go through to just think about you know, what is important uh, in, in this story of the kings uh, that apply to redemptive history. And again, that's what we're looking at here in Academy, uh, is how, in the, how the Bible is you know, one redemptive story rooted in history with Jesus Christ as the hero. Again, that's the, that's the big story, right? Uh, okay, what we're going to do next is move right into group discussion number two, all right? Uh, what do the following passages tell us about the basis for God's assessment of the kings of Judah? Now, on your sheet, it was printed out on the table in front of you. Uh, the first um, reference was wrong. It had first kings. 14 through 2 through 5. It's actually 2 Kings. So the uh, references up here on the screen are important. So take a few minutes to look at each of these scriptures and see what you can glean from those as to on what basis did God, uh, uh, what was the basis that God used for his assessment of the kings? Okay, let's stop there. <clears throat> and let's have just a brief discussion uh, about this particular question. So, uh, from what you, uh, the scriptures you read, the discussion you had, uh, what did you come away, come away with believing that God's basis for his assessment was? Whether or not they removed the high places. Okay, do you know what the high places were? Yeah, uh, and they were actually uh, raised pieces of dirt. Some of them were actually hills, and some were actually you know, man-made 
the dirt piles where they put a, a pole or an idol or whatever, and they were all over the place, on the hillsides, under the bushes, trees and stuff. So, but they were always raised up in the same way, shape, or form based around the, the ground around them. So they were little, you know, high up. Some were really high up in the mountains, and others were just on the pile of dirt. So, good. But yeah, uh, what they did with the high places. What else? I looks at the heart, not uh, his appearance. And what were the hearts of most of the kings like? Yeah, they were wayward at best. <laughs> yeah, they were wishy-washy. What else? Right. Okay, made an alliance with uh, somebody they weren't supposed to. Okay. Yeah. Right. There were a lot of those, Dave, that uh, you know started off you know pretty good, and then they just went off the rails, yeah. uh, either either very quickly or sometimes not until the end. Uh, right. So this this is there's this theme that we see running through this that uh, how faithful were the kings to God's commandment. And that's kind of the overarching, that's, that's kind of like, you know, the, the, the standard. Uh, so let's take a look at the, uh, specifically, you know, what the standard looks like. Again, remember I said early on uh, this evening that the writer of Kings uses Deuteronomy as the spectacles through which he views how the king should be assessed. And we see this here, Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 5 and 13. Uh, and then the, the red type I have up there, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing uh, worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods, wipe out their names for those, those places. And be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Okay, so like this is the standard. These are the things that I'm going to hold you accountable for as the king primarily. Uh, and the king is really the one who was in charge of making the decisions that impact the religious orientation of the nation. So what we see is that you know, God's expectations for the kings uh, is, is such that if they, you know, they are to obey the law, they are to make a scroll, keep it with them, read it all the time, uh, and be devoted to God and his word. And it's only through doing this that the kings and their descendants will reign for a long time over the kingdoms. Well, the problem is that didn't happen. And from your discussion last week with Barry, uh, what do you recall... Um, the assessment of the northern kings being, generally speaking? Evil. Bad. How many kings were there in the north? Do you remember? Uh, 19 or 20. Usually, usually 20 is the number that most uh, folks have. So this is a little um, uh, graphic here. Uh, you see at the, at the bottom, uh, you know, the, the a red uh, crown means bad king, a green crown means good king, and the green crown with yellow around it means an exceptionally good king. So as you can see, the, the northern kings here, there's nothing but red. <laughs> so there, it's easy to remember, there were no good kings in the north. None. Zero. No, none of the northern kings of Israel were good. Okay, they were all bad. All right. So that brings us to the southern kings. But before we get to the southern kings, let's just talk a few words about Solomon because Solomon is the last king in the united monarchy before the division occurs. Okay? And how would you assess Solomon against this standard that we just looked at, look back at it in Deuteronomy? What do you think? How'd Solomon do? Started off good, faded. Okay? And what was his downfall? Do you remember? <laughs> and and not just one or two <laughs> he had what 700 wives and like 300 concubines kind of okay okay but but the real the real issue there was not so much the women but what happened 
what's getting, a lot of these were political alliances. So he marries them for political alliance, okay? And so part of the marriage, you know, come along are the gods of their cultures. And uh, Solomon allowed that. Okay, so he allowed that. And so he was led astray into worshiping foreign gods. That was really his big downfall. I wouldn't pin it on the women. I'd pin it on, pin it on his inability to remain faithful to what God called him to do. Okay? And what was the consequences of his, of his infidelity? The divided kingdom. It was going to be torn from his hand. Was it torn from his hand when he was alive? Right. It wasn't torn from his hand until his son, Rehoboam, comes on the scene. Okay, so we're going to go through a uh, fairly quick order here. Uh, the first 12 kings of Judah, because that brings us up to the, through the readings that we did for tonight's lesson. Okay, there are other kings in Judah that we're not going to talk about tonight because those come later. So uh, if you want to kind of follow me on the screen here, we're going to do this very quickly. Uh, so Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He is not specifically mentioned as doing anything good or bad per se in the text, but the nation under his rule did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he does not get a green crown, unfortunately, okay? Um, and so then that brings us to his son, uh, Abijah, and Abijah committed all the sins his father had done before him, and he was not fully devoted to God. And then the next one in line, Asa. Asa, we see, has a green crown. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He got rid of all the idols, uh, he, but he did not remove the high places, but yet his heart was fully committed to the Lord. So he actually gets a green crown. Right? Then we have his son, Jehoshaphat, another green crown. Uh, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he did ally himself with King Ahab, who was probably one of the worst kings, like the worst of the worst in Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, and then we have his son, Jehoram. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then Ahaziah, Jehoram's son. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then we have this one-off character that appears on the scene. This is the only woman on the scene here in this list of monarchs in, the, in Judah. And we see this in 2 Kings. Uh, she is not part of the Davidic line. Okay, And she usurped the throne after... Uh, her son, Ahaziah, is killed, and she reigns for six years, again, illegitimately, because she usurped the throne. And she, what makes it worse is, she attempts to wipe out the Davidic line of kings. She tries to kill her grandson, basically, okay? Uh, and there's no biblical record of her being assessed by the standard, because she really wasn't one of the kings, uh, but uh, it's just inferred if you kind of, you know, read quite clearly, that she was not a good egg. Uh, and she was uh, put to death by the sword in uh, some palace intrigue, uh, led by one of the priests, actually, one of the priests that or uh, orchestrated her, her downfall. And she was put to death by the, by the sword. Uh, and then we have Joash, Ahaziah's son. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the high places were not removed. And then we have Amaziah, uh, Joash's son. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. He was kind of, you know, kind of, kind of wishy-washy, okay? Um, uh, and so, because uh, he, you know, he brought back gods uh, from the people of Seir, set up his own gods, and he bowed down to them, which angered the Lord. And then we have Uzziah, Amaziah's son. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done, but Pride led to his downfall. He went into the temple and he burned incense on the altar of incense. And for this indiscretion, God smote him with leprosy. Okay, so that was his punishment for going astray. Uh, and then we had Jotham, uh, Uzziah's son. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, the people, however, continued to do their corrupt practices. Then the last one we look at here in this line of kings, through again, to, uh, uh, the lessons for tonight, not the last of the Judah kings, but the last one for tonight, is Ahaz. Ahaz is the worst king in Judah. I mean, he is the worst, and the reason he is the worst is quite simple. He didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he sacrificed his own children. I mean, can you get any worse than that? 
you know, sacrificing your own children. Um, and he offered sacrifices and burnt incense in high places. So he was just really, really bad. Kind of like, you know, um, uh, you know, the worst of the worst uh, Ahab in the northern kingdom. Okay. So uh, the assessment of uh, the kings of Judah uh, looked like this. And again, uh, we're only going through the first 12 here, but you can see that there were a number of good kings, a number of bad kings, and there were two exceptionally good kings, uh, which we'll be looking at later on, Hezekiah and Josiah. They were really the top-notch kings in Judah. So in wrapping up tonight, what we want to just uh, talk about very briefly are the two primary prophets that were mentioned in our readings for tonight's lessons, and they are uh, uh, Isaiah and, uh, and Micah. So let's take a look at the prophet Isaiah. He's a, called a major prophet. His is one of the longest prophetic books in the Old Testament. Uh, he is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He is a resident of Jerusalem. Tradition has it that he died by being sawn in two during the reign of King Manasseh. Uh, his name means Yahweh will save or Yahweh is salvation. Uh, his call to ministry is absolutely spectacular. Would that we all had a call to ministry like this. I mean, we would set the world on fire, no pun intended. Uh, it, it, read about it if you haven't done that, uh, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. It is a dynamic <laughs> come-to-God meeting, uh, and it's just, a, it's just a wonderful call to ministry. Um, and his ministry begins during the year King Uzziah died in 740 B.C. Okay. Uh, and he was active during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. As far as his message goes, um, it's kind of a high level. It's that God's people no longer have insight into the ways of Yahweh. Isaiah 6, 9 says that, he writes, the people are ever seeing but never perceiving. In other words, they just have no insight into the ways of God. And the Israelites, because of their adultery, and idolatry, have failed to embrace God's calling for them to be holy, to be holy as God is holy. They failed at doing this. And this failure, fueled by the various kings' tolerance of and sometimes active engagement in the worship of foreign gods and the idols, has this trickle-down effect on the nation. And all of their corrupt ways trickles down the nation. And... Isaiah's primary concern is for the inner life of the nation, the nation's heart and soul. During most of his time when he was prophesying, the nation of Judah was pretty prosperous. It was very on, on the surface. It looked really, really good. But the nation was still filled with idols. Its rulers were scoundrels uh, for, for many of them. Uh, the people were haughty. Uh, they were full of pride. They bowed down to the work of their own hands. Uh, the judges were corrupt, they would take bribes, they would acquit the guilty, uh, they would deprive the innocent of their rights, uh, and the homes of the wealthy contained the spoils of the poor. These are all things that Isaiah says in condemning life in Judah. It's very telling. But like a lot of the prophets, he has a flip side to his message. He says, repentance is the way to salvation, Isaiah 30, 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. They knew the way to go, but they would have none of it. Okay? But there was still, if they went that way, it would mean repentance and peace. But they didn't go that way. So Isaiah's message captures this tension that most of the prophets uh, ha had between the people and, uh, and uh, between the kings and, uh, and, and God. So there's this divine tension between divine holiness and judgment on, uh, against sin on the one hand and divine grace and promise on the other. So that's the tension. Uh, Isaiah uh, 10, 20 through 23 says in part, In that day, the remnant of Israel will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, a remnant will return, destruction has been decreed, overwhelming, 
and righteous. So we can kind of sum up this, that, you know, this tension between divine holiness and judgment against sin and divine grace promise this way. The prophecy that Isaiah spoke that the people were going to be exiled reflects God's holiness and judgment. I warned you, if you don't obey, this is what's going to happen. I'm a just God, and so therefore, being exiled, I'm exercising my holiness and my judgment. The prophecy that the remnant is going to exist is a reflection of God's grace and his promise to David that his, his line of uh, descent will last forever. So we see this in, uh, in Isaiah, these two things, very well balanced, uh, and for the people to hear, okay, for the kings to hear. Uh, and then we have the prophet Micah, who was also a prophet to the southern kingdom, contemporary of Isaiah, and he shared the same basic concerns Isaiah did. His name means, who is like Yahweh? Micah means, who is like Yahweh? He was a resident of Morasheth, which is 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, for those of you who like geography. His message had two parts. Number one, uh, divine judgment against sin is coming. Okay. And number two, divine forgiveness and restoration are coming. So he is most concerned about injustice. We see here in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. The faithful have been swept from the land. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. In other words, injustice in society reigns. And this is uh, his primary grievance with Judah. Uh, and then his divine judgments are reflected in, uh, in, in chapter 1. Uh, we see here that, therefore, I will make Samaria. Now, he's, he's talking to the southern kings. But there's this reference here to Samaria, the northern kingdom, which fell first. And he's saying, uh, quoting God, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple uh, gifts will be burned uh, with, uh, with fire. Samaria's plague is incurable. Their idolatry is incurable, is what he's saying. And it has spread to Judah. And it has reached the gates of Jerusalem itself. Okay. Uh, and so his message here of divine forgiveness we see reflected here in chapters 2 and chapter 7. I'm not going to take the time to read those. If you're going to make a note, that those references. This is his message of forgiveness and restoration that is available to the people. Okay. Again, circling back to where we started this evening with the big idea. In spite of most of Judah's kings doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the overarching story of the southern monarchy during the years of the divided kingdom is God's faithfulness to the promise he made to King David that his throne shall be established forever. So, are we all clear on that? Any questions on that? Okay. Uh, and then finally, the connection to the uh, one redemptive story. The propensity of God's people to abandon him for idols is insufficient to cause God to abandon his plan of redemption. Regardless of what the people do, God's plan will succeed. Amen. Amen. Amen.